Buonasera. And happy Mother's Day in Spain, Mum. And I'm sorry, I just realised that this is a month late. But with Easter and everything, that made a bit of a delay. Um, yeah, well, I've been talking to you pretty much every day, so I don't really have any news that you don't know. But looking forward to doing a bit of reading. That's one thing, actually, I'd really like to improve this year. I was thinking about setting up a book club just to encourage me to read a bit more. And I feel like a lot of my friends here are in the same situation, so I really should get on to that. Until then, though, we still have quite a few chapters in Me Talk Pretty one day. So let's get to it. Chapter 10. Today's Special. It is his birthday, and Hugh and I are seated in the New York restaurant, awaiting the arrival of our 15-word entrees. He looks very nice, dressed in a suit and sweater that have always belonged to him. As for me, I own only my shoes, pants, shirt and tie. My jacket belongs to the restaurant and was offered as a loan by the maitre d', who apparently thought I would feel more comfortable dressed to lead a high school marching band. I'm I'm worrying the thick gold braids decorating my sleeves when the waiter presents us with what he calls a little something to amuse the palate. Roughly the size... Roughly the size and colour of a band-aid, the amusement floats on a shallow, muddy puddle of sauce and is topped with a sprig of greenery. And this would be what exactly? Hugh asks. This, the waiter announces, is our raw Atlantic swordfish served in a dark chocolate gravy and garnished with fresh mint. Not again, I say. Can't you guys come up with something a little less conventional? Love your jacket, the waiter whispers. As a rule, I'm no great fan of eating out in New York restaurants. It's hard to love a place that's outlawed smoking but finds it perfectly acceptable to serve raw fish in a bath of chocolate. There are no normal restaurants left, at least in our neighbourhood. The diners have all been taken over by precious little bistros boasting a menu of indigenous American cuisine. They call these meals traditional and yet they're, they're rarely the American dishes I remember. The club sandwich has been pushed aside in favour for herb-encrusted medallions of baby artichoke hearts, which never, which never leave me thinking, oh right, those. I wonder if they're as good as the ones my mom used to make. Part of the problem is that we live in the wrong part of town. Soho is not a macaroni salad kind of place. This is where the world's brightest young talents come to braise caramelised racks of corn-fed songbirds or offer up their famous knuckle of flash-seared crap, crappy served with a collar of chided ginger and cornered by a tribe of kiln-roasted chilli and toadstools teased with a warm spray of clarified musk oil. (laughs) Even when they promise something simple, they've got to tart it up. The meatloaf has been poached in seawater or there are figs in the tuna salad. If cooking is an art, I think we're in our dada phase. I've never thought of myself as a particularly finicky eater, but it's hard to be a good sport when each dish seems to include no fewer than a dozen ingredients, one of which I'm bound to dislike. I'd order the steak with a medley of suffocated peaches, but I'm put off by the aspirin sauce. <laughs> the, sea scallop, the sea scallops look good until I'm told they're served in a broth of malt liquor and mummified lychee nuts. <laughs> 
What I really want is a cigarette, and I'm always searching the menu in hope that some courageous young chef has finally recognised tobacco as a vegetable. Bake it, steam it, grill it, or stuff it into a little neck glance. I just need something familiar that I can hold on to. When the waiter brings her entrees, I have... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) When the waiter brings her entrees, I have no idea which plate might be mine. In yesterday's restaurants, it was possible both to visualise and recognise your meal, and there were always subtle differences. But for the most part, a lamb chop tended to maintain its basic shape. That is to say that it looked chop-like. It had a handle made of bone and a teardrop of meat hugged by a thin rind of fat. Apparently, though, it was too predictable. Order the modern lamb chop and it's likely to look no different than your companion's order of shackled pompano. The current food is always arranged in... I'm sorry. (laughs) Deep breaths. Okay. The current food is always arranged into a senseless vertical tower. No (laughs) luck. Sorry. (laughs) Okay, come on. Come on, Amina. Get a grip. The current food is always arranged into a senseless vertical tower. No longer content to recline, it now reaches for the sky, much like the high-rise buildings lining our city streets. It's as if the plates were valuable parcels of land and the chef had purchased one small lot and unlimited air rights. Hugh's saffron linguine resembles a miniature turban topped with architecturals. (laughs) God, how am I going to get through this chapter? I'm only four minutes in. Okay. Hugh's saffron linguine resembles a miniature turban topped with architectural spires of shrimp. It stands there in the centre while the rest of the vast empty plate looks as though it's been leased out to a possible parking lot. I had ordered the steak, which, bowing to the same minimalist fashion, is served without the bone, the thin slices of beef stacked to resemble a funeral pyre. The potatoes I'd been expecting have apparently either been clarified to an essence or were used to stoke the grill. Maybe, Hugh says, they're inside your tower of meat. This is what we have been reduced to. High blows. Hugh blows the yucca pollen off his blackened shrimp while I push back the sleeves of my borrowed sports coat to search the meat tower for my promised potatoes. There they are, right there. Hugh uses his fork to point out what could easily easily be mistaken for five cav- for five cavity riddled molars. The dark spots must be my vegetable. Because I am both a glutton and a masochist, my standard complaint, that was so bad, is always followed by and there was so little of it. Our plates were cleared and we were presented with dessert menus. I learned that spiced ham is no longer considered just a luncheon meat and that even back issues of Smithsonian can be turned into sorbets. I just couldn't, I say to the waiter, when he recommends the white chocolate and wild loganberry couscous. If we were counting calories, I could have the chef serve it without, serve it without the creme fraiche. No, I say, really, I just couldn't. We ask for the check, explaining that we have a movie to catch. It's only a ten-minute walk to the theatre, but I'm antsy, because I'd like to get something to eat before the show. They'll have loads of food at the concession stand, but I don't believe in mixing meat with my movies. 
Luckily, there's a hot dog cart not too far out of our way. Friends always say, how can you eat those? I read in the paper that they're made from hog's lips. And? And hearts and eyelids. That, to my mind, is only three ingredients and constitutes a refreshing change of pace. I order mine with nothing but mustard and I'm thrilled to watch the vendor present my hot dog in a horizontal position, so simple and timeless that I can recognise it immediately as food. Okay, and now we're on to chapter 11 because that one was quite short. Chapter 11, City of Angels. My childhood friend Alicia lives in North Carolina and used to visit me in New York at least twice a year. She was always an easy, undemanding house guest, and it was a pleasure having her as she was happy following me around as I do my errands or just lying on my sofa reading a magazine. Just pretend I'm not here, she'd say, and sometimes I did. Quiet and willing to do whatever any else wanted, she was often favourably compared to a shadow. A week before one of her regular December visits, Alicia called to say that she'd be bringing along a guest, someone named Bonnie. The woman worked at a sandwich shop and had never travelled more than 50 miles from her home in Greensboro. Alicia hadn't known her long, but said that she seemed like a very sweet person. That's one of Alicia's most well-worn adjectives, sweet. And she used it to describe just about everyone. Were you to kick her in the stomach, the most you could expect would be a demotion to semi-sweet. I've never known anyone so willing to withhold judgment and overlook what would often strike me as a major personality defect. Like all of my friends, she's a lousy judge of character. The two women arrive in New York on a Friday afternoon, and upon greeting them, I notice an uncommon expression on Alicia's face. It was the look of someone who'd discovered too late that she's either set her house on fire or committed herself to travelling with the wrong person. Run for your life, she whispered. Bonnie was a dour, spindly woman whose thick girlish braids fell like leashes over the innocent puppies pictured on her sweatshirt. She had a pronounced Greensboro accent and landed at Kennedy, convinced that given half a chance, the people of New York would steal the fillings right out of her mouth, and she was not about to let that happen. The cab driver said, It sounds to me like you two ladies are from out of town, and I knew right then that he was planning to rip us off. Alicia placed her head in her hands, massaging what had become a visible headache. I knew exactly what he was up to. I know the rules. I'm not stupid. So I wrote down his name and license number and then I'd report him to the police if he tried any funny business. I didn't come all this way to be robbed blind. And I told him that, didn't I, Alicia? She showed me the taxi receipt and I assured her that this was indeed the correct price. It was a standard $30 fare from Kennedy Airport to any destination in Manhattan. She stuffed the receipt back into her wallet. Well, I hope he wasn't expecting a tip because he didn't get a dime out of me. You didn't tip him? Hell no, Bonnie said. I don't know about you, but I work hard for my money and it's and it's mine and I'm not tipping anybody unless they give me the kind of service I expect. Fine, I said. But what kind of service did you expect if you've never ridden in a cab before? I expect to be treated like everyone else that I ex is what I expect. I expect to be treated like an American. That was the root of the problem right there. Visiting Americans will find more warmth in Tehran than they will in New York, a city founded on the principle of us versus them. I don't speak Latin, but I've always assumed that the city motto translates to either go home or we don't like you either. Like me, most of the people I knew had moved to New York with the express purpose of escaping Americans such as Bonnie. Fear had worked in our favour until a new mayor began promoting the city as a family theme park. 
His campaign had worked, but now Bonnies were arriving in droves, demanding the same hospitality they'd received last month in Orlando. I've had visitors from all over, but Alicia's friend was the first to arrive with an itinerary, a thick bundle of brochures and schedules she, she kept in a nylon pouch strapped around her waist. Before leaving North Carolina, she'd spoken to a travel agent who'd provided her with a list of destinations anyone in her right mind would know to avoid, especially around the holidays when the crowds multiplied to Chinese proportions. Well, I said, we'll see what we can do. I'm sure Alicia has places she'd like to go to, so maybe we can just take turns. The expression on her face suggested that the give and take was a new and unpleasant concept to Bonnie of Greensboro. Her, her jaw tightened and she turned back to her brochures, muttering, I came to New York to see New York and isn't nobody going to stop me. Our troubles began the following morning when I disregarded the itinerary and took two women to the Chelsea flea market. Alicia wanted to look for records and autographs. Bonnie wasn't much of a shopper. But after a pronounced bout of whining, she decided she wouldn't mind adding to her lifelong angel collection. Angels, she said, were God's way of saying howdy. The flea market was for good records and autographs, but none of the angels mustered an appropriate howdy. Not at these prices. I'd asked some lady how much she wanted for a little glass angel playing a trumpet, and when she said it cost $45, I told her to go straight to you know where. I said there's no way I'm paying that much when back home I can get ten angels for half that price. And I said, there'd be a lot more spiritual than the sorry-looking New York angels you all have here. That's exactly what I told her. She pronounced the flea market a complete waste of time, adding that she was cold, hungry and ready to leave. It was decided that even though $1.50 was a lot to charge for a 10-minute ride, she would take the subway uptown and get something to eat. Things went smoothly until the transit clerk accidentally short shorted her a nickel and Bonnie stuck her mouth into a token window shouting, Excuse me, but for your information, I do not appreciate being taken for a fool. I may be from Greensboro, North Carolina, but I can count just as well as anyone else. Now, are you going to give me my five cents or should I talk to your supervisor? At the restaurant, she insisted that the waitress had overcharged her for, for the, her milkshake, even though the price was right there on the menu. When I suggested we leave and maybe see a movie, Bonnie pushed herself back from the table and proceeded to sulk. I wanted to go to a Broadway show, and here you are talking about a movie I could see at home for $3.50. I flew 500 miles to see New York, and all I got was a chocolate milkshake and a plate of hash browns. Some damn trick this turned out to be. We should have beaten her to death. It was clearly the best solution to the problem, clearly the best solution to the problem, but instead we went to the half-price ticket booth. Alicia took her monster to a Broadway show and I met up with them afterwards. We hoped the play might satisfy Bonnie, but once she'd gotten a taste of our itinerary, there was no stopping her. The following morning, she woke Alicia at 7am and they could, uh, so they could head, get a head start on the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building. She visited the UN and the South Street Seaport and returned to the apartment at four in the afternoon. Alicia was ready to throw in the towel, but Bonnie wanted to go for high tea at the Plaza Hotel. High tea is fine if you like that sort of thing, but she became angry when I suggested that she might first want to change into something more appropriate. The woman was wearing what people in the South refer to as hog washers, the sort of denim overalls favoured by farmers. The crowd at the plaza would most likely be dressed up and I was worried that she might feel out of place in an outfit, an outfit most people associated with hard manual labour. I was only trying to help, but Bonnie didn't see it that way. Let me tell you something, Mr. New York City. I am very comfortable with the way I look. 
And if the Plaza Hotel doesn't like what I'm wearing, then that's their problem, not mine. I'd done my best to warn her, but, what was, but was actually thrilled when she rejected my advice. The scarecrow look was fine by me. I'd never been to the plaza, but felt certain that she'd be eaten alive by troops of wealthy, over-caffeinated society women with high standards and excellent aim. Service would be denied and voices would be raised and she'd wind up drinking her tea at some pancake restaurant, restaurant in Midtown. Alicia changed into a dress and I dropped them off at the hotel, returning an hour later to find Bonnie wandering the tea room with a disposable camera. Would your man take a photo of me standing next to the waiter? I'd have my friend do it, but she's got a bug up her butt. I expected her to be physically removed from the building, but was horrified to realise that the Plaza Hotel was essentially Bonnie Central. Dressed for comfort in sweatshirts and tracksuits, her fellow scarecrows were more than happy to accommodate her. The flashbulbs the flash were blinding. Now those were some nice New Yorkers, she said, waving goodbye to the crowd in the tea room. I tried to explain that they weren't real New Yorkers, but at that point she'd stopped listening to anything I had to say. She dragged Alicia off for a carriage ride through Central Park and then it was time for a visit to what she called Feo Schwartz. The toy store was followed by, brut by brutal pilgrimages to um, Radio City Music Hall, St. Patrick's Cathedral and the Christmas Tree at Rockefeller Plaza. The crowds were such that you could pick your feet up off the ground and be carried for blocks in either direction. I was mortified, but Bonnie was in a state of almost narcotic bliss, overjoyed to have discovered a New York without New Yorkers. Here were out-of-town visitors from Omaha and Chitonga, outraged over the price of their hot-roasted chestnuts. They apologised when stepping on someone's foot and never thought to complain when some nitwit with a video camera stupidly blocked their path. The crowd was relentlessly pathologically friendly and their enthusiasm was deafening. Looking around her, Bonnie saw a glittering paradise filled with decent, like-minded people, sent by God to give the world a howdy. Encircled by her army of angels, she drifted across the avenue to photograph a, jugg a juggler while I hobbled towards my home, a clear outsider in a city I'd foolishly thought to call my own. And that's that. that um, so that was chapter 11, but chapter 10 had to be for me anyway the funniest chapter so far and I feel sorry for you having to listen to it because I don't know if you're if maybe the message got lost in my laughter if it did let me know though because I'm happily re-recorded god that was a good laugh thoroughly enjoyed it and that's it back to the normal schedule next week bye